Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. This week, we're going to part two with producer Mark Plotty. First of all, this week, I received a number of emails about different types of media and posts that you need to use in order to effectively promote your music. And I think that there's some sort of confusion about them. But here's a way that you can think of just about everything that happens online. And maybe by categorizing things, it might be a little easier to grasp. First of all, there are really three types of media. There's owned media, paid media, and earned media. Let's look at owned first. Now, these are things like your website or a blog if you have one, for sure your newsletter and mailing list. You own those. No matter what happens, you control them 100%. Something like your Instagram or Facebook profile is not owned. If Facebook or Instagram decides they're going to change your terms of service, change the look, change the feel, guess what? You're out of luck. You have no control over that. So the only things you can really control are your website, blogs, like I said, they're kind of out of favor, but nonetheless can be effective, and your newsletter mailing list, which may be the most effective thing that you have at your disposal. The second type is paid media. Now these are ads. Could be an ad on Facebook, could be on Instagram, it could be Google. Now here's the problem. They're very effective. You can run out of money real fast if you don't know what you're doing. And there's also a lot of restrictions. So if you're an artist that maybe has some blue language that you normally use, or maybe there's lots of nudity involved in your posts, that's against the terms of service of most online platforms. So that'll probably mean that any kind of paid advertisement is coming down. That being said, I think every artist should learn how to do at least a little bit of paid advertising. And where I would start is a course by Jerry Banfield. I think it's $9. It's a really good starting place to learn about Facebook ads. He's really clear about everything. The only thing, he's kind of slow. So make sure you put it on double speed or 1.5 speed. Another place after you got your feet wet is John Loomer, J-O-N-L-O-O-M-E-R. And John has a great site with all sorts of free information, but he also has some of the best courses available. So this will help you at least on Facebook, and you can take much of what you learn there and then take that over to other platforms as well. So that brings us to the third type of media. This is earned. So this is actually beyond your influence, but the good thing is it's free. So for instance, if someone decides to write a news story about you, or a blog post about you. If something that you do goes viral, that's all earned. But, like I say, you can't really influence it. So this is very, very powerful. This is the way that you can blow up real fast. The only thing is, you have to keep feeding it. So once things start to happen in this category, you have to keep engaging, you have to keep posting, you have to keep doing what you're doing. So these are the three types of media. You need a combination of all three in order to really promote yourself online. Owned, paid, and earned. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, there's a website that I look at quite often. It's called gearnews.com. And Gear News is out of the UK, they pretty much have the latest on any gear that's coming out. And since they're in the UK, they kind of have a worldwide look on things where some of the sites that are US-based look more about what's happening here. 
So I like to check this out frequently. Usually once or twice a week, I'll have a look to see what's brand new. They just came out with their top 10 audio hardware for the year list. I thought it was pretty interesting, so I want to go over it with you here. This is in no particular order. It's just their top 10. One of the things was the Warm Audio Bus Comp. This is an SSL bus compressor clone. The good thing is it's only $699 retail, and maybe you can get a deal on it. I don't know. But nonetheless, again, a piece of hardware. If you desire to get that SSL bus comp sound and you really don't want to use a plug-in, this might be a good way to do it. Speaking of bus comps, there's a company called Wes Audio. I wasn't familiar with them at all. They have something called the NG Bus Comp, which is basically a modern VCA comp. They're not trying to copy anything, which is kind of the way of the future, I think. This is about 3000 bucks, so it's a lot. Next is the AMS Neve AMS RMX-16. The RMX-16 was a favorite during the 80s. It's the sound of the 80s in many ways. And they now have a reissue, only now it's available in a 500 series rack module. It's $1,295, which is, oh, probably about a third of what it used to cost. Drummers also come out with their model 1970 compressor preamp. This is stereo. It's a successor to the really famous 1960 that they used to have. But about half the price again, $1,497. Here's a company that I think is kind of interesting. I knew nothing about them, called Tierra Audio. And they have a series of eight compressors and pre's and all sorts of different flavors and sizes. But what's interesting here is they claim to be a, an eco-friendly company. So they will plant a tree for each piece of gear that you buy from them. The average price is about $1,500. Another item on the list is the Black Lion Audio Bluey. This is a 1176 Blue Stripe clone, and it was made in conjunction with Chris Lordology. I have to say that almost all of the hardware and software that Chris has gotten involved with sounds great. I really love it, especially the software. I'm sure this sounds good, too. The Blue Stripe 1176, they didn't make many of them, and this is particularly a good one that they modeled here. It's only $899. The only difference between a normal 1176 and the Bluey is the fact that it has a wet dry control. Another item on the list was the AMS Neve 8424 console. This is basically like a big 24 channel summing mixer. It comes with two 1073 preamps, some 500 series slots, moving fader automation, some EQ. What you're basically buying is the 80s series sound that connects to Digital Audio Workstation. It's around 25000 And speaking of Neve, Heritage Audio has come out with their HA81A. And this is two Neve 1072 clone preamps and two 1081 clone EQs. The big thing here is the price is only 1099 which is fantastic for one of them, let alone two. Another item is the Neumann V402 two-channel mic pre. It's $2,900. The thing about Neumann is when they come out with something, it's very high quality. It usually holds its value really well, and it sounds really good. And finally, the last thing is yet another compressor. It's the Rupert Neve Designs 5424 dual diode bridge compressor. And this is an updated version of the Neve 2254 comp which a lot of people really like because it was really aggressive sounding. It has a distinct sound that's really in your face. So there's tons and tons and tons of compressors. This is sort of unique in the fact that it's a dual dial bridge compressor. So not many of those at all. This is $35.99, so it's kind of expensive, but if you want that Neve sound, there you go. So this is the top 10 audio hardware list from gearnews.com. My guest this week is Mark Plotty, who worked with a wide range of major artists, including Prince, David Bowie, Janet Jackson, Talking Heads, Fleetwood Mac, The Bee Gees, The Cure, and many others. In part one of our interview, which was episode number 338, we talked about working with Prince and Bowie, music for theater, 
following up on opportunities, and much more. Today in part two, our interview is just about the technical and philosophical aspects of producing. During the interview, we talked about producing and engineering at the same time, his approach to different genres of music, being a track energy manager, dealing with low-budget projects, and much more. I spoke with Mark via Zoom from a studio in New York City. Can you tell me about the first production that you ever did and how it came about? Like my first production sort of in the professional world or before that? Because uh, no. I guess they were two very different things. Yes. I'd say the first project that you produced. I guess the first thing I took from the ground up was uh, when I was an intern in Dallas, Texas, um, Part of my project was I had to produce something as far as uh, passing the course to get out of being an intern. I had to produce something. So I found a band in town. Uh, there were lots of bands in Dallas in the mid 80s. Uh, I guess the most famous of that crop of bands was uh, the New Bohemians who became Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians. Um, and they were gigging around town and I, uh, I really wanted to do something with them. Uh, and it's a funny story because they were kind of into it. I spoke to the guitar player, but then the manager said, no, nah, he kind of called it off, which was an, an early music business lesson, I guess, <laughs> uh, about those things. So I found a band called Daughter Judy, who were an all-female rock band. And they were really good. They had great songs. And uh, I brought them in the studio and basically from the ground up, like, you know, uh, did a little pre-production, went through the songs, decided kind of uh, tempos were working for the songs. Uh, didn't play with any key signatures, things like that with bands or mm, could be pretty set when you're getting into it, that, that part of the game. Um, decided which songs, which order to do them. Um, and yeah, and tracked the band live with me engineering and producing. And, uh, it was, it was quite a cool experience for me. Um, it was sort of much better than I expected. It was more of a, you know, I thought it would be kind of a little stressful as far as carrying, you know, that big a ball, I suppose, but I don't know. It all came pretty, it came pretty naturally. And I, I have to give a lot of credit to the artists who were more than willing to try things and, uh, go with the flow. So that would be my first one. It was, you know, pretty amateur, but I actually listened to it a couple of years ago. I was pretty good. <laughs> you know, you'd always change some things later. It was like, you know, for a first time in bringing in a band and dealing with all the, you know, the technical things and the personality things and the musical things all kind of at the same time, I was pretty happy. So that was a good that was a good way for me to leave that town, knowing that I had kind of really got that under my belt. You know, you mentioned something before about engineering and producing at the same time. And for many people, that's not possible. They can't just split their brain that way. I'm one of them. It's not possible for me anymore. <laughs> I don't think. Um, although I got spoiled at some point. I, I did that all the time. That was what I always did, was produce an engineer. And then there was one point I, uh, I did an album where I was actually the MD, and I was playing, and I thought, you know what? Let's not do that. Let's get a tracking engineer. Let's, you know. And that really was illuminating for me because sometimes when you get into doing something and you have a method and you you know, you don't look outside that method because it's working for you. And, um, and that was the great thing about being an assistant. I, was, I would see all these other engineers and how they would do it and what their methods would be. But once you start doing it yourself, you kind of, you know, you don't have that influence like you did when you're an assistant. So when I did that and I didn't engineer, it was really kind of liberating because then I could just, I could just listen to the song. I'm not, I don't have to watch meters. I, I, you know, I don't have to, you know, make sure we have enough tape. I don't have to do any of those things. Um, as long as I get a guy, an engineer who I trust, who kind of 
sonically can think a little like me or will let me, you know, help steer that because some guys don't want to have, it's like they do their thing and you don't touch that. But usually I don't get into those situations. <laughs> yeah. Not intentionally anyway. Yeah. Um, so that was really liberating to me. And after that, I thought, you know what? I can do a better job if I'm not multitasking. I can just go really up this one road and really do it really great, really super well and super tuned into that instead of having to like, you know, drive everything. I think when you start, there's a thing about, there's an ego thing about wanting to do it all. Like I can do it all. And especially around that time, you saw like Prince was doing everything and all these, Todd Rundgren, they're all doing it all themselves. And you go, it's cool, you know, but then after a while, I go, ah, all right, I did that. It's better if maybe I don't. Now, that being said, you play on a lot of things that you produce as well. So in a way, you're doing the same thing. You're splitting your brain. Uh, that's true. Um, although uh, <laughs> there was times I was playing producing and engineering. Mm. It's pretty mad, actually, thinking about it now. Um, in a way, it is. If you're playing, if you're just playing a part, it's not so bad. I can kind of do that and kind of judge my own performance. Um, if I'm just overdubbing a part, that's really not a problem. If I'm part of like a live group doing it, yeah, I'll, I'll I want to hear it played back, make sure it's happening, and um, make sure that I didn't miss something. Uh, because yes, you want to concentrate on the performance, and and it's hard to get outside yourself when you're playing, although there will be times when I'll go, man, that's, there. Goes, oh, that's just wrong. Even if I'm playing my part or there'll be things like that. I'll, I'll dial into immediately. I just know it won't feel right. Um, things would have to do with feel. Um, I will get, sometimes I'll get that more when I'm playing actually, because then I'm really sort of in the trenches and I'll go, just, you know, this groove doesn't feel right. There's something, you know, sound here. It's a, you know, somebody's laying back too much or too many, you know, there'd be something or, the, you know, playing like a half BPM too slow. You could just, then, then it really, um, I don't know, almost becomes like physical. So it's not such a, such a jump as like, you know, technically. How about we go the other way then? You're playing and something feels really good to you, but when you listen back, you go, oh, I'm not so sure. Oh, that's never happened. <laughs> um, of course it does um and it could also be said that like you know we've recorded something one day you know and i'll be sitting back there going oh, it sounds good and then the next day we all shut and go hmm maybe not i mean there are things like sometimes things in the moment strike you and and then with a little bit of distance um you go oh, maybe it wasn't quite it we were excited about a particular aspect of this and now it's kind of you know, the magic of that maybe was short-lived. So you've done all sorts of different projects, different genres of music. Is your approach the same? You know, I was thinking about that because I knew you'd ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose there's a common thread to all of it in that it's all music and it all has to flow and it all has to have an arc and it has to move from one place to another. I mean, sometimes I say like, sometimes I say I'm in energy management because I'm like managing the energy of this track of like, where is it now? Where is it going? Has it been there long enough? Is it time to back off? Uh, is it, you know, is it too long? Have we has it said what it had to say already? Um, or is it just, or is the point of it to say it too much? Sometimes that's true. It's, it's, um, and so sometimes just knowing the motive of what you're doing, well, most of the time, knowing the motive of what you're doing is important. And I think for me, that crosses genres. Like, okay, what are we doing here? What is the point of this? Um, like if I'm doing a house, and it's like, yeah, all right, it's got to be six minutes long or something, because that's sort of the point of that. It's not going to be like a, well, you make a kind of single out of it, sure, but um, something like that, or doing a remix, like, all right, it's, you know, I would put it myself in a slightly different headspace 
for that than I would for, say, doing, you know, a band who has songs of a dedicated sort of length and style. Um, but it's all still kind of, you know, it has to, it's all like a, a miniature journey, I suppose. And it has to, you know, either you're on a dirt road, or you're on a paved road, or you're whatever it is, it's still a journey. You have to kind of, I don't know, make the journey interesting. You know, you're the perfect person for this because you've done both. Of course, when we think of producer, in many cases, we think of a producer working with live musicians, working with a band of people. And most modern production is not that. It's a creator that's building up a track and then putting stuff on top. And you've done both. So is it the same headspace for you? Mm, obviously, probably not because you get personalities in the mix. And of course, you have to work within uh the parameters of the people that you are with. And that can, that can be very easy if everybody is sort of, you know, in the soup together, you know, mentally, emotionally, musically, it can be tricky if there's somebody that isn't. Um, there's sometimes there's, you know, there's just a contrarian and that's their function is to like question everything you do. And sometimes that's a good thing. It's like, all right, you know, make me defend what I'm doing, right? Okay. Sometimes, you know, when they're doing it for the sake of being contrary, it's just like, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I welcome some of that. And, yeah, when you're working alone, I suppose you don't get that. Uh, you don't get the, the interplay of personalities, uh, which is sometimes – I miss that, but sometimes it's nice to be able to just say, okay, you know, I'm unfettered by any other sort of input here and I can just sort of, you know, go down the road I want to go. So they both have their thing to them that I appreciate. How about pre-production? How much pre-production do you typically do? I think that's kind of the most important part. It sort of just sets sets, sets us up, you know, for the way we're going to go. I try to do, I don't know, not so much that we kind of wear it out, but just enough that we know, all right, what songs are we doing? I try to get tempos ahead of time if we're going to use a click. Even if we're not, I will we'll settle on a click with the, the intent of me taking it out after like eight bars or something and then letting it go from there, just so that we start at the same place. Uh, and most people are, you know, especially now, you know, most people are like okay with that with click track. I mean, I don't know about twenty years ago. I think it would have been, um, <laughs> yeah, for both musical and political reasons, people might not have been up for it. But now uh, people seem okay with that. Uh, and again, and keys like like vocal vocal keys. Uh, that's something I learned. Really has to happen by other people not doing it. <laughs> there was one artist, I was an engineer. I was just the engineer. I wasn't, you know. And they had it all ready. It was a program thing, all done. You know, tracks are done impeccably. Bring a singer in. Can't sing one of them. Completely out. And it's like, what are we going to do? So I, at the time, I used the pitch shifter du jour, which was the Kubosan 90. Oh, yeah. And I had to bump all the non-rhythm, all the, all the harmonic tracks, I had to bump them. And I thought, oh, I'm not making that mistake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when it's my turn at bat, I'm not making this mistake. Um, so that, that's, very, that's very important that the singer has to sit right because that's sort of, you know, for a lot of music, that's the that's where we're going. That's what we're going to end up with. That's, that's the critical element. So, you know, that can't be left to the end. That's a good thing to talk about. Actually. I'm glad you went there. I think the popular way to record vocals these days is have a vocalist sing a bunch of tracks and then you comp it later, but there are still some people that prefer to punch in or, you know, to, to get it closer on one track than to just comp it together later. How about you? I leave that up to the vocalist. I mean, I have to kind of follow their, uh, follow their flow and what works for them, what makes them sing. Like if they, if they feel comfortable doing like five or six takes and then me kind of, you know, putting it in the blender and, 
and, and sorting it that way, then yeah, sure. If they want to just bang it out a couple of times, top to bottom and, um, and, and drop in along the way, that's fine too. It, it really, whatever makes them, you know, do their thing. Having said that, I will, if, if I don't see us getting any results, I will try to switch that up a bit and say, okay, maybe we should just, let's work on a verse, say something like that, or work on a part of it. I also try not to save the vocals for the very end. Because that was something I always used to see was like, you get all these things done into that. And then the singer's got to sing the whole lot. I mean, I wouldn't want to be that singer. Yeah. <laughs> all right, you got 12 songs to sing. Everybody's like done but you. And that's it. And I don't know. That just seems like a lot of pressure to me. So I try to get, as soon as things are at a good enough place within our track, say, all right, let's, let's sing something. This way we're kind of all moving together ahead at the same time. If they haven't done it along with with the tracks, and this always it depends on the singer and how you know if they can do that if they wanted to. You know that the other problem there is if you're on a tight budget and you leave that until the end, you might not have enough time to actually do what you need to do. <laughs> yes, <And> now <laughs> a lot of people end up, they end up doing that at home. They end up, uh, you know, God, the last couple of things I did, I didn't even do the book. I just did them at home and sent them to me or sent me tapes and I would comp them. That's kind of become, especially now in, you know, in pandemic world, I'm in the middle of a project. Yeah, I, just, I get tapes and it's like, okay. Um, and I comp those, which I guess there's something to be said for that in that, you know, again, depending on the singer, if they feel comfortable doing it at home, nobody ground late at night then that's great there have been instances where i want to say something about it but since i'm there i can't i can't say well i think you know you maybe should back off a little on your general energy in this i can't say that if i'm not in the room or i can't suggest like well you know maybe go to this note just for this part and see how that feels i can't make suggestions so that's kind of the downside of all this, you know, all this remote stuff. I mean, not only for singing, I guess for everything, like getting sent keyboard parts, getting sent whatever. There's now a lot of them doing it this way. Um, so that's kind of a downside where the interactive element is really lacking. You know Michael Beinhorn, right? You know who he is? Yes, yeah. yeah. Michael's kind of transitioned from producing to being a production coach, I think is a good term. And what he'll do is he'll get rough mixes in and then he'll give that evaluation. So then he'll, he'll basically guide them and say, okay, this is what you need to do when you go back and finish it, which seems like a good idea if someone is willing to actually take them up on that. Right. I suppose if you're looking him up for that, then you, you would be looking for, for those suggestions, but I don't know, I guess, would they know how to implement what he's telling them? I mean, that's, that's the other thing, given that I mean, some people, sure, they would, but everybody's different and at different levels. And, you know, everybody's learning to become an at-home record producer, I suppose. So that's a nice idea, though. Well, th that's a good place to go. It's true. Everybody ha has a home studio these days. Everybody thinks they're better than they are at recording and producing and everything. <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah, I've gotten some crazy tracks coming through the internet. Yeah, yeah, especially drum tracks. It, it's pretty funny when people are used to getting great drum tracks with real producers and engineers, and then they try to do it themselves and find out, oh, wait a second, this isn't quite as easy as I thought it was. Yeah, that's true. I know a couple of guys, a couple of drummers who have, but they've really gone down the rabbit hole with that. They've built home rooms. They've, you know, you know, engineers' brains about microphones, placements, and, you know, interfaces, and all the rest. And that's been pretty good. I, I did another project where it was completely homegrown drums, and it wasn't bad. I mean, it's not going to be power station. It's not going to be, you know, unless somebody's got a room like that in, in their yeah. house. But um, for close mic drums, 
not so bad, especially if I go and augment with some samples and it's like, wow, this is working. It, it, especially given, given the times and the budgets that we have, times we're in the budgets we have, it's like, that's, you know, that's, it's not bad. It's better than uh, the alternative, which would be you know, nothing. Yeah. Well, how about that then enhancing with samples? Do you find you're doing that as kind of a matter of course? Cause I, I know, engineers and producers that no matter what they get in or how well it's recorded, they're going to use their particular sounds. Do you go down that road? I find that I do a lot. I do a lot just to, especially with some of the sounds I get, it helps. It keeps me from, you know, EQing the hell out of like a snare drum that just doesn't have a part of it in it, you know, and because otherwise I'm going to have a completely unmanageable hi-hat example so um i will often take you know what i call like sort of generic drum samples i have that really don't have much character on their own but it's like oh i need a little bit of beef in this i'll put this one like you know, behind and kind of i'll end up with you know a composite sound that has sort of the flavor of what it began with but it's just kind of i don't know i gave it a little dose of steroids a little bit <laughs> but not enough that like you, you know it's not crazy i i don't uh i'm not sure who's doing that i mean i guess some people do but, uh, i don't know to me it doesn't sound very organic if it's purely you know because it's not going to match what's in the overheads and all that yeah, yeah. it's completely different but um, i haven't seen that since the days of the ams where it's just like replace boom 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 like you're mentioning before, diplomacy is such a big part of being a producer when you're working with a lot of people, when you're working with the band. And I think it's part and parcel of the job description and the talents you have to have in order to pull that off. But that being said, there are times when you have to make a difficult decision that either one person, like a singer, for instance, or the artist doesn't agree with, but you know it's for the best. How do you approach that? Mm. Uh, depends on the people. Some people are up for pure honesty. They just wanted they just want it to be better. And they're like, "What do you think?" And I will say, "I think you're not singing this well." And I think you're, you know, we need to tune you. Say that. Like, there's a good one. That's a good one because some, you know, people have a real issue with being tuned. Some people do. Um, but it's like, well, you're not cutting this, so I have to tune some notes here. You've tried it like, you know, multiple times. And, and some people are like, no, I'm going to do it 10 more times till I get it. Um, most people now are kind of like, uh, they're okay with that. They're okay with like a spot treatment. On a vocal. Uh, but I find that just being really honest about those things, uh, it saves time and it saves grief in the end. Uh, I don't know that I've had situation recently where it was really difficult and there was somebody that like, I knew was going to take it badly. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think usually something like that. You have to gauge the, you know, you have to gauge the situation, say how delicate do I need to be with this? Or are there those that, is there some person um, in this group I should approach first? Say, oh, they are like, you know, maybe they can, they can tell me, they can help me tell the bass player, like, you know, that precision bass just so they can help me do that. Maybe, you know, or yeah. um, there have been occasions with, I don't know that I've outright replaced somebody. Um, that's a tough one. I know people that have, and I don't know that that's really my thing to just like, replace somebody outright um, not in a bad situation i know what happens but i don't know that i could do that that'd mm. be a little bit too tough for me I think. yeah i know well you know especially because you're a player yourself you're very sensitive to that i think that makes all the difference in how you approach this because you're looking at things from the other side a lot of times yeah and i don't want to kill a guy's vibe because there's something that's, you know, fundamentally wrong 
because maybe things can get fixed. Things can be uh, modified if, if they're open to it. Uh, so I don't really want to kill somebody's thing I don't, uh, unless it's just so totally off. But I don't know that I'd be there if, if I thought it was that. I mean, that's something else I do before I even start. Uh, my first, I think, condition is that I need to feel like I'm right for this, that I can add something to this, um, because otherwise it's just, you know, you're talking, you know, round hole, square peg, whatever, you know, that kind of thing. And I don't, you know, I don't think that's, you know, that's not good for me. I'm not that person. And I know because I've done it before. I've done, uh, I've done business-based productions that were like, look great on paper because management said, ooh, this is you know, it's going to be cool, you and them, and da-da. It's like, and then I meet them and think, that's nah, really not for me. I don't think I'm good. Fit. Oh, come on. It's, but it will work. It'll be, you know, it's going to be great. It's going to result in la-la. And against my better instinct, I went down that street and I should have trusted my better instinct because it was, you know, a complete fiasco for me. I'm not a person that can make a business-based musical choice. I can't kind of go in and think that. Uh, I mean, a vocal session, something, but not like producing an album or doing a tour. That's too much for me. Anybody could get through a day, but I couldn't get through months of like trying to fit into a situation that I don't feel like I can properly add to. Yeah. It's no fun either. It all has to be fun. It's anti-fun. It's just (laughs) misery for me. Total misery. Uh, Budgets generally, except if you're in the the A-list projects, budgets are generally lower than they've ever been. What corners do you have to cut in order to fit what you do into a typical low-budget project? I guess the biggest corner I've cut is having a studio. I think that's, and that's come, you know, that's de rigueur now for everybody. I mean, you have to have a place to work that you don't have to pay by the hour or whatever, by the day. You know, a studio that needs to make money. And you can't, unless, you, unless you're, you know, up there in that sort of league, most people are not doing that. It's just too, it's too expensive and given the sort of recording dynamic now, the mixing dynamic of nothing ever, ever being finished, because now that we're in this digital mode and you can go back and change something very easily and every mix is recallable. And sometimes I'll get up to like eight or nine passes on something on just little tiny details that people want to hit, which is good in in that now people have the ability and the time uh, to do that. That's nice, but uh, yeah, if I had to pay a studio every time I wanted to go in and set up a mix, it, it would be completely doable. One of the things that would always drive me nuts is someone will say, well, can you boost the hi-hat 1 dB during the chorus? And, and, <laughs> and you think to yourself, I'm not sure that you can hear that now, but in two weeks, you won't even remember what you said. You won't even remember this suggestion. That's true. I do indulge a lot of stuff like that since I find it to be really easy. And then I'll uh, say, maybe it did work. Maybe that did change the feel of this slightly. Maybe it didn't. In which case I'll just, you know, I'll just do it. It's, I remember back in SSL times where one producer I worked with had, he would do things where if somebody heard something, he said, okay, change this fit or just so much like this. And, okay, cool, but they didn't know that those faders were in isolate and they weren't making a change. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> now, I wouldn't psych somebody out like that. I, I, don't, I don't know. I think something like that's going to catch up to you. But I don't know, a lot of little things like that, I don't mind. It's like sometimes I get, and I get something out of that. Like, all right, what if I do change that? But I'm curious too. Like, maybe that's going to make it better. Maybe it will make a difference. Um, people go back and forth on vocal levels, like, too high, yeah, it's too much, too little, and like, all right. After a while, so here's three different versions. Now you know, hey, you can, now you can cut between them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. take your choice. Maybe the chorus is a better half dB down. I don't know. Now you have time to think about it. Listen to your car, your house, and take all the time you want. Get back to me in two weeks, and I'll you know 
clap together. I used to work in a studio back in the original Aphex days when they had the Aphex oral exciter that you rented by the minute. And we had a switch, a three-way switch in the console that said Aphex, off, and Bfex. And it wasn't connected to anything. (laughs) Nothing at all was connected to it. But you would have fights by people in the band that would say, that would swear Aphex was better than Bfex. Oh. And you go, well, okay, I don't know if I should tell you this or not. <laughs> yeah, you're all the placebo, man. It's, yeah, right. It's, it's so funny that, you know, but that's true. People really get, they get psyched out on things. And, things and, <laughs> and, and if there's a, a suggestion that it's being changed, they'll kind of, they'll think it will. They'll hear it, quote, unquote. They'll, and even if you're not, or if you've, you know, Oftentimes, someone has said, you know, switch between these two mixes. Okay, I'm playing this one now, and then I'm playing this one. Oh, that one's much better. And then I'll I'll think to myself, shit, I forgot to actually do that. Yeah, 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 right. (laughs) I did the same thing twice, but how do I tell them now? Like, you know, (laughs) because. Yeah, yeah, right. So there's that. Go, oh, yeah, okay, that's that's the one. Then I'll just agree and go, cool. Ken Scott told me the story. I think it was Benny and the Jets when he was doing Elton. And he said that they mixed all night and they had like 30 different mixes and he swore he knew which one it was like number five or something. So the next morning he put number five up and told everybody it was the very last mix they did. And they all went, great, that's it. Put it out. Let's do it. (laughs) Wow. That's experience. Yeah. That is experience knowing that that's what you, you know, sure. Because after after you do five mixes, I mean, you're lost. Yeah, yeah, right. It, what, 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 yeah, you could be doing all kinds of things. I would love to have heard that 30th mix. See what that was. Really yeah, yeah, right. I agree. I How agree. loud were those symbols? <laughs> <laughs> Mark, what's the most fun thing that you do? I mean, it's really, I can't say. It, it differs from day to day. It's, uh, I don't know, mixing thing sometimes is great it's just like wow i really took this to another level producing things is great because you're just making something out of nothing you're just pulling things out of the ether and all of a sudden there's this thing there's this musical entity that didn't exist and that never ceases to excite me that we've we've just made something that wasn't here before um i know that sounds maybe kind of I don't know, maybe naive, but that's, I don't know, it works for me. It's like we, we just, creativity is, I don't know, it's a beautiful thing. Let's go the other way then. What's the thing that you dread doing? <laughs> I don't know, working with assholes? That's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a, don't like that. That's working with unjustified huge egos that i don't like if so, somebody has a huge ego and they and it's justified okay but there's there's those that are like and they think you know the sun shines out of their ass and it's like uh no yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but th- there's no convincing them otherwise and everything they touch is golden and uh, i don't like that you know that's a personality element i, I suppose in terms of a musical thing that makes me, hmm, I don't like drummers I have to fix too much. That's just, that's no fun. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's one thing, all right, you know, this entrance was a little early. Ah, no big deal. Um, it's kind of like tuning an entire vocal. It's like, why are we here? If I have to tune your whole vocal, that's like, a, to me, it's like a pointless exercise. Like, you know, if we haven't done our homework enough that we come here and I have to like tune every note. Um, Come back in six months or something. The drums that are just drums that feel bad. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that physically hurts. What was the most difficult project that you've ever done? And you don't have to name any names, but just the situation. I'd say uh, the one recording project where I had to pitch shift the whole song. That was hard because that was long, and there was a lot of that. There was a lot of kind of fixing unnecessary mistakes with a little bit of unjustified large ego, personal drama. 
that was a hard one. That was kind of like one of those you can manage if if the music's great and there's one person that's a little, you know, got a big head. It's like, all right, but you have all those things. If the drummer's a sweetheart, but he's a rhythm so okay. Well, I don't mind fixing you because I like you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's but all of it together under one roof is just that's hard. I know you like to mentor people. Oh, I do? <laughs> I suppose I kind of do without knowing. I mean, because when you say that, I think like, because I've never had an intern. I've never had somebody kind of working here with me uh, for the simple reason that I travel too much. Mm. Um, so it's just like, I can't really offer somebody something to come and hang with me because you know, I'm going to be here two weeks and then I'm out and I don't even know most of the time where I'm going to be within. I'm not one of those guys with a, a schedule set, you know, where I'm going to know the next six months I'm here, there, whatever. It just tends to come to me like a few weeks ahead of time. Like, oh, okay, now I'm going to do that and uh, this and then that. And that's how my, you know, it's a very freelance flow, I suppose. So it's hard for me to have somebody come and be you like know, a sidekick here. But Oh, generally when people are here and they want to know, I'll show them how I do things. I'll sort of, well, just you know, whatever they want to know, I'll just tell them here's, here's how I do Yeah, I know there's a school of thought that says, uh, I'm afraid to tell you what my tricks are because then you might take my gig. Then there's the other school of thought that says, well, you can't do it like me anyway. Well, that's true. It's just, just because I use something in a certain way, it's doesn't really mean much you know it's funny like i see you know in plugins you have all these artist presets for eqs and stuff it's like okay but that works for them and that works for their head and their ears but i don't know what what merit that has for me as far as how's that going to translate to my head to my ears to you know it just seems kind of interesting to me that that part because that's what they do um, and I can't do it like them nor should I or maybe should I want to uh, so all these things make us very individual which I think is I think that's the greatest thing yeah do you have any favorite plugins that you tend to use all the time yes <laughs> but I'm not telling you what they are <laughs> <laughs> Well, hold on, because I have some open, and let's see what what am I using on this little thing I got going here. That's very indicative of things lately. I'd say, okay, and I have phases with these things too. You know, it's like liking a flavor of ice cream for a while. Maybe kind of move for something else. I will say, lately, I've been very into UAD. A, um, API 560s. Mm. Yeah. I use those a lot. Um, I've been using the Waves TG Mastering Suite. I find that's like, that's loads of fun. I've been using that a lot. I've got it last year. Valhalla Reverbs. Oh, yeah. I, I love those. It's just, you know, that's just like putting butter on something. It's fantastic. It's just, um, I think I like that better than some of the other ones. Let's see. Uh, what here? I like the uh, the Universal Audio, uh, the Ampex one or two. I use it every time. Okay. Do you use it across the whole mix or on individual channels? Uh, the way I mix, I use it on stems. Okay. And then, you know, either I'll have the same one you know, the same preset, or I'll switch it up a little, depending on, you know. Lately, I have this thing about going between Ampex 456 one inch and half inch, mm. and seeing what suits, you know, what suits what, what's better on what, and that's just kind of what I've been doing. On this particular project, it's been that. It's like, that's been kind of, a, you know, a little back and forth on this particular one. And that happens with other, on other projects, with other plugins, left. oh, it's like, you know, oh, am I going to use this Fairchild 660 or the 670? Which fits this better? And I'll kind of, you know, go back and forth and, and listen over and over and hear the little difference. And, you know, and sometimes I go, that's so subtle that only I care. 
which is still valid because. <laughs> well, if it inspires you, then you'll get an inspired track. Well, that's what I figure. It's like, I have to, you know, if I don't get off on it, then I don't know. How can I expect somebody else to? Yeah. Again, it's all hugely subjective, but generally I mean, that's why people hire you to do something because they want you to do your thing to the way that makes you happy. So I figure that's what I should be doing. And why wouldn't, you know, why wouldn't I anyway? It's, otherwise it's not much fun if I'm just you know, throw any old thing. I will say I'm fond of a hybrid approach. That's a good one. Okay. It's, you know, I think very particular to me and I well others too, but I think uh, against, you know, most of the world, a lot of the world is now completely in a box and I get that. And there are, you know, great things about that. Um, uh, nobody can see it, but I have like a little, you know, Rupert Lee Designs console here. Uh, I have our um, old outboard here. I've got LA2As. I've got uh, Chandler LTBs. I've got Phoenix Thermionic, uh, Chandler Zener. Uh, what else is a big one I use a lot? Oh, the Retro 176. Distressors. And I tend to use these, uh, maybe not all of them on everything, but uh, I do tend to, everything I do does, you know, if I have a rule, if I have a method that I do kind of do a lot, I'd say everything here leaves the computer and comes back for want of a better expression. Like, uh, are you talking about the individual channels or are you talking about the final mix? Combination, like the vocal will be on a, uh, you know, have an LA two A on an insert, and then I'll drive the level of that with uh, from the computer so that I'm not playing with the knobs, for example. Uh, some things like oh, I have a smart compressor which I use on stereo mix if I'm using it there, and that is out in real world. Uh, so it's a combination. You can find out more about Mark at mark-plotty.com. That's mark-plati.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.